Well, Jay, this is our second special episode, and I can say it started off with talking about vinyl recordings of Vandergraaff Generator, a very <laughs> obscure prog rock band, and all kinds of music-related stuff in terms of artists and, and great albums, and then... We switch gears. It was the most interesting conversation we've had in a long time with almost anybody, and yet this is also a person that we've talked about uh, uh, almost every episode, almost every version. uh, I'm sorry, almost every episode of the of the podcast we have talked about him or the the things that he has started, and of course the he is Merc Mercuriatus. And yeah. boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a fun conversation it was. It, it really was a great conversation. And after the interview, I sent over a quick note and said, you know, thank you and all of that. But the next time we talk, Mike and I want to, you know, talk about our record collections. You yes. know, because he's one of those guys, just like you, uh, just like me, we, we can talk for hours and hours about, you know, our favorite bands and influential artists and just like you mentioned, he he started going down that path just in our little pregame uh, before we hit record. And and for those that don't know, uh, Merck Mercuriatus, he is the founder of Hypnosis Song Fund, but he was hired at Virgin at 19 years old and uh, was doing marketing later uh, A&R, but he quickly realized that his passion wasn't for labels, it was for artists. And in 1986, uh, he joined Sanctuary, and I, I had the pleasure of uh, working not directly for him, but working under him um, when I was at Sanctuary. He was there for 20 years uh, as CEO. And then, of course, later he founded Hypnosis. Yes. And, of course, along the way he did management. He managed a couple of developing artists you might have heard of, Elton John, Guns N' Roses, Morrissey. (laughs) Um, So he comes at this from really understanding and working with artists and being a gigantic music fan himself. And, of course... You and I both kind of our our entree into music was Kiss as as his was, and um, you know it was just it's it it was just like chatting up somebody and we're roughly the same age as he is as well, uh, chatting up someone who is just a passionate music fan. But the difference, of course, is he can turn around and talk to institutional investors. <laughs> Right, <laughs> And I can't do that, Jay. I would love to, but I can't do that. But he had a vision and, you know, and he really, and we heard anecdotally from a lot of people that, you know, he is, you know, the phrase we heard and we mentioned to him when we were started talking to him that he is doing God's work in terms of supporting songwriters and really right. out there, you know, giving the spiel and, and walking the walk and talking the talk about supporting yeah. songwriters because especially in this day and age when there's all this pushback on the on the increased uh, mechanical royalties that, that they're trying to get through and all of the major labels and major publishing companies are pushing back. It is so disappointing, but he is leading the charge to support the songwriter, which of course this entire industry is built on. Right, and they're the ones that are least compensated in the food chain and he's looking to have that changed and you know you spoke about how he's worked with some of these uh other you know like investment companies and you know other executives outside of the music industry but he's also striking deals with people like neil young lindsey buckingham christine mcvee alan jackson dave stewart Rick James, Jimmy Iovine, Chainsmokers, Richie Sambora. We could go on and on and on. He is a true music freak, and I mean that in the best possible way, Mm -hmm. but he's also an advocate 
for the artist and for the songwriter primarily. And he's flipping the script and really kind of turning things upside down and has really changed the way that people look at um, the music industry, how people are paid in the music industry, and uh, what people, well, what the value is of someone's catalog. Absolutely. Well, and, and at, at the very least, he has um, raised the, the awareness of this uh, amongst so many people. And I think we might have mentioned it in the interview and also uh, maybe when we were talking to him. But, you know, it's, it's you and I have talked a lot about even though we worked for major record companies that owned major publishing companies, it was rare that you had an, that you interfaced with those divisions. They, they were it was just like it was two separate countries. And um there is so so much more awareness now of what exactly publishing is and how that world works, and it's a good thing. It is a good thing, all of the work that he's doing, and it, what a treat it was to chat with him. Sure was. So here is our, uh, our special bonus episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast, our interview with Merck Mercuriatus. Let it roll. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. We are so thrilled that you've taken time to talk with us. Um, I want to get in, I want to start with your background, but before I do... Um, I was talking to a music industry attorney friend of mine, and I told him we were going to be talking today, and, and this is his quote. I, jo- I jotted it down. He said, Merck's really doing God's work in many ways. You know about the business side, which is groundbreaking, but he's also a great advocate for songwriters in several countries, which is phenomenal. And I just wanted you to know that, you know, when we're talking behind your back, those are some of the things that people are saying. So That's very kind. You know, I, I, I started hypnosis with both a motive uh, and an ulterior motive, right? But, but, but the, the, the basis of the company, the reason why I started it was the ulterior motive. So the motive was really simple, which is that I wanted to establish songs as an asset class. And I believe that I could make institutional investors a lot of money while at the same time establishing those songs as an asset class and make money for myself, of course, as well in my company. But this, this, you know, sort of pure business idea of establishing songs as an asset class was something that was going to be great, not only for hypnosis, 
but for all songwriters, right? Because if I can demonstrate the true value of songs, um, then that doesn't just benefit me, but it benefits everybody. Um, and then the ulterior motive was to use the platform of that success to then advocate and fight for songwriters and change where they sit in the economic equation. And I structured hypnosis in a way that is unique, um, although it, 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 it's ridiculous that it's unique, because the investors now sit in the shoes of the songwriter, right? So they have complete alignment with the songwriter. We're the only company where if the songwriter gets paid more money, the, the investors get paid more money. So the investors, of course, back me 1000% when it comes to advocating and fighting for the songwriter because they want to get paid more money and they know that if the songwriter gets paid more money, they'll get paid more money Makes too. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to that, Merck, I have a question. You talk about working with institutional investors when you started the company. To me, that is like a, a pretty unique skill set for someone in the music business. Where did you get that that um, vision into that world, or was that always something you kind of paid attention to? That that. That seems like you're dealing with a lot of uh, just a, a different group of people than typically you would expect people that are in the record business, in the publishing business, and management dealing with. Was was that a, a, a steep learning curve for you, or did you already kind of have familiarity with that sort of world? It was it was the ten thousand hours, right? In in the sense that you know I'd had a great career and was having a great career as a manager you know, very privileged to work with everyone from Elton John to Guns N' Roses, Iron Maiden, Morrissey, you know, Nile Rodgers and Sheik, of course. Um, but, you know, what happened was that I started to work with songwriters a lot. People like Diane Warren, Justin Tranter, The Dream. And when you're working with an artist that writes their own song, uh, songs, and, you know, you, you, you are kind of looking at their entire income streams. You don't necessarily notice the disparity that exists between what a songwriter gets paid and what the artist gets paid, right? But when you're then looking at a songwriter's income, right, and you look at what, you know, Diane Warren's I Don't Want to Miss a Thing meant to Aerosmith's touring and Aerosmith's record sales, but at the same time, you know, Diane, and no fault of Aerosmith, this is the fault of the paradigm and the fault of, of, of the music industry. Diane is getting, in, in relative terms, a mere pittance, right? Like, you know, two summers ago, three summers ago, before the, the pandemic started, you know, the biggest song in the world was a Ryan Tedder song for the Jonas Brothers. Everyone in the world was going to see the Jonas Brothers play live. They were getting, you know, high six figures for their live shows. And Ryan you know, the guy that was responsible for the song was just earning a, 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 a measly songwriting royalty, right? And, and, you know, a songwriting royalty that is getting grounded, you know, grounded out. And I wanted to, the more I looked at this, the more I wanted to um, create a platform that could advocate for songwriters, because what I saw was that the three biggest publishing companies in the world that would love to be able to advocate for songwriters as hard as they can, 
were owned and controlled by the three biggest recorded music companies in the world. And those recorded music companies, they want all the money to go towards recorded music because on recorded music, they get 80%, you know, they get four fifths of the income, 80%. They've got this 80% gross margin, a 40% net margin. In general, they own those assets in perpetuity. Right. And, you know, conversely on the song side of the business, the publishing side of the business, you've got a fifth of the income, you've got a fifth of the revenue. And quite rightly, whether it's through good management or good lawyering, you know, um, renegotiations, reversions, the songs end up back in the hands of the people that co-created them. So it's in the interest of those three big companies to, you know, exercise their leverage and control of recorded music having its way, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, it's at the expense of the songwriter. Right, because they're pushing as much of the revenue, pushing as much of the leverage towards recorded music, and the songwriters not being paid properly. Right. And you know, ultimately what I looked at was when I when I looked at this paradigm, I, I thought, well, logic isn't gonna win here, right? Because logic, they're gonna swap me like a fly, no matter how logical I am. Yes, I've been successful, yes, I've got money in the bank. Yes, I've got important people and artists that, that, that fuck with me in this business, you know, that, 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 that love to work with me, but they can swap me like a fly if I pick this fight. So I needed to create a platform that um, would give me the opportunity to fight the fight. Um, and it just coincided, my thoughts coincided with streaming. And I can remember having a conversation with Daniel Eck and Martin Lawrence and at Spotify um, uh, very, very early on in, in, in Spotify's life where I said to them, look, you know, I'm not sure that you guys really understand what you're doing here. Um, and they, were, they thought that I meant what they were doing in terms of, 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 you know, offering a streaming service. What I really meant was that, you know, you guys are going to transform this business in a way that no one has seen because what you're going to do is you're going to take the passive consumer that has never paid for music in their life, and you're going to turn them into an active consumer that's paying for music every day. And when they, when I said that, they were like, well, what do you mean? And I said, look, you know, the benchmark for extraordinary success in our business is the platinum record, right? In the United States, that's a million copies in a country that has 360 million people in it. It immediately tells you that the average person, albeit they might love music, doesn't love it enough to put their hand in their pocket and pull out a tenor and pay for it, right? right. They're happy to hear it for free on, ostensibly on the radio or see it on television, but they were never paying for it. What I could see was that streaming at $10 a month, being able to listen to everything from the Beatles to Beethoven, from Chopin to Chic, whether it's on the beach, whether it's in your car, whether it's in your office, you know, this was going to make it worthwhile for people to spend $10 a month. Um, and, you know, what's happened in that 12 years or so since that conversation has taken place is that we've gone from 30 million paid subscribers in, in the last four years alone since I started hypnosis to now 500 odd million paid subscribers around the world. And music now, that million copies in the United States 
We now have 100 million homes in the United States. So we've gone from the customer being one in 360 to now being one in 3.6. And music has gone from being a discretionary or luxury purchase to now being a utility, right? I've got to pay my electricity. I've got to pay my Apple or my Spotify. I've got to pay my gas bill. I've got to pay, you know, my, my utilities. We've gone from literally a, 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 a discretionary or luxury mentality to utility mentality. And this started to create the basis for the idea that would become hypnosis because I basically matched the predictable, reliable income that comes from these great songs because once they hit, they become a part of the fabric of our society with a pie that was going to grow. And as I say, it's grown from 30 million paid subscribers in the five years that we've existed to over 500 million now today, and we'll be you know, hitting 2 billion in a decade. Um, so this was a perfect investment case. And it, I could see that it would give me that critical mass that was necessary, that platform that was necessary um, to fight the fight on behalf of songwriters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How how do we make sure that songwriters are paid fairly? Uh, there's the copyright royalty board. We see what's going on there and the fight that's happening uh, where publishers and songwriters feel like they should be paid more. And I think most reasonable people would agree with that. Um, how do we move that pie to make it equitable? Um, because right now it, it feels like it's not. It's not because, you know, if you take a, a dollar's worth of, Spotify or Apple income and you take off the 30% that Apple or Spotify are going to get, um, you know, could that 20%, 21, 22, 23%? Of course. But really in the scheme of things, it's right now, that's not the material point. The material points, what happens to the other 70%, right? Right. And the other, and the other 70% right now is effectively 60 of the 70 going to recorded music, they're paying most artists on a, a, a sale rather than on a license. So they're paying them a royalty rather than 50% of the money. So they get to keep about 50 cents out of every dollar. And the songwriters at this moment in time, before CR, the, the CRB3 um, appeal is hopefully turned down, um, you know, they're getting 10 and a half cents out of every dollar, right? And that's multiple songwriters getting fractions of a penny on every dollar. So you've got the record company getting about 50%. You've got the artist maybe getting 10% and you've got the songwriters then splitting 10%, right? And it's, 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 it's fractions of a penny on every dollar for, for, for writing the biggest songs in the world. And what's really important to note is that, you know, before we, we, we started to record, we were talking about some of the artists that we love, right? We, we, the three of us come from an era where, you know, at least when we started, 90% of the artists were artists that wrote their own songs that had a very good idea of who they were, who they'd like to become, what their album cover should look like, what their stage show should look like. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the job for someone like me was to believe in them and help them bring that to fruition. Today, 90% of the artists that are signed are really talented people, but that are looking to an outside songwriter to deliver the hits for them, right? So there, there hasn't, this is a great statistic. 
there hasn't been a Billboard Top 100 Album of the Year that didn't have an outside songwriter on it since 2014. Wow. So in the last wow. eight years, in the last eight years, every Billboard Top 100 Album of the Year has an outside songwriter on it, whether it's Coldplay or whether it's Dua Lipa or whoever it might be, right? So there's never been a more important time to recognize the role of the songwriter and to ensure that they're remunerated in a way that is fair and equitable. And that's not happening. And and you mentioned the copyright board in the UK, the Competitions and Markets Authority with our help um, is looking into um, how songwriters could be paid more money. And they've started a 12 month um, uh, investigation into you know the dominance of the major recorded music companies um, and how the relationship of them owning publishing is unhealthy because you know look it's you know often when I discuss these arguments it sounds like I'm you know not a fan of Universal Warner or Sony nothing could be further from the truth I love so much of the repertoire I love so much of the the, the so many of the people that are in those organizations. And my criticisms are not of the organizations or of the people in those organizations. They're of the paradigm that exists, right? And and the thing about paradigms, particularly ones that last 70 years, like the way that this one has lasted, is that people often don't know any better or they don't think about it because they've been taught that this is just the way that it is, right? right? And what I'm trying to teach people or hopefully inspire people to recognize is that just because that's the way that it is doesn't mean that it's the way that it should stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, you know, like someone that I have a tremendous amount of time for is Big John at Sony um, Publishing, who's one of the greatest developers of songwriters in the world um, and fights hard for, for, for his songwriters. You know, he wrote a great letter to his songwriting constituency last week on the back of the CRB um, four. Um, ruling where they where they, where they basically <laughs> the you know, decided not to go with the settlement on mechanical royalties for physical product, um, and Big John wrote an incredible letter to his constituency, outlining how he wants to fight for songwriters. I think we've made it possible for that to happen. Right, that's the the fact that that we've stood up as hypnosis and used our platform to say what are very very logical things about, you know, like the the one thing that no one can ever, I'm very careful, you know, with my words, I'm very careful not to say anything that someone can shoot down because this is a very important war to win. The one thing that no one can ever say is that songwriters don't deserve to get paid more money. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the premise is like, you know, if, if, if you genuinely believe, you know, someone, I normally don't react to social media, but someone on, on Instagram last night was trying to have a go at me because I was um, applauding the CRB4 ruling. And they were saying, you know, don't you know how small the, 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 the margin is on vinyl? And I was like, come what? on. I, I, I said, come on. Let me put this in context, right? The 9.1 cents that was where we were 30 years ago, right? And 30 years ago, a vinyl album cost $10, right? A vinyl album cost 
$30 today, but you still want the songwriter to get paid that 9.1 cents that they were getting 30 years ago. How would you feel if I told you that you were going to get paid today what you got paid 30 years ago, or you were going to get paid what the person that was in your seat got paid years ago, you wouldn't be able to survive. This is why songwriters are having such a difficult time surviving. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Is there any territory uh, in the, in, in the world that has a, a better system in terms of more fair publishing, or is this kind of across the board worldwide that it's, it's out of whack? It's, it's out of whack worldwide, but the U.S. is way behind everyone else, right? So even if you go to Europe, in Europe, instead of that being 10 and a half cents, it's 15, right? Or 10 and a half percent, it's 15 percent, right? So that's a third more. Yeah. What CRB3 gave us at the beginning of 2019 was a 44 percent increase excuse me, that would take us to, you know, between the beginning of 2019 and, and the end of, of, of 2022, it would take us to that same 15% that Europe is on. Right. But of course, but of course Spotify, appealed. Appealed it. Yeah. Amazon have appealed it. Now it's easy to point those guys out as the bad guys. And I certainly don't appreciate their appeal. Um, and I'm, I can't wait for, for, for what I hope will be the copyright board knocking it back and upholding the 44% increase. But you have to ask yourself, you know, going back to how I sliced the pie, you have to ask yourself why they're, you know, why they would appeal that, right? So if you've got the record company taking 50% for themselves out of every dollar, um, and then you're asking, you know, Spotify or, or, or Amazon to pay the songwriters increase as well, they're under the, the squeeze, right? And, and, and the other thing which, which very few people recognize is that the mechanicals that used to be the responsibility of the record company are now the responsibility of the DSP, right? So that 9.1 cents on every album, you know, the, the, back in the CD days and the album days, yeah. that's a dollar or so that would get paid for publishing on a, on a record sale, that was the record company's responsibility, right? Now, it's not a dollar anymore. It's something less than that. But that's now Spotify's responsibility or Amazon's responsibility or Apple's responsibility. And no one really wants to point that out, right? But, the, but what the record companies have been able to do in these deals that are under NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and no one knows what, 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 you know, what, what the deal really is, right. They have passed the buck on mechanical royalties to uh, uh, the DSP. So it's no wonder we're in a position where they're appealing. Now, as I say, I'm confident and I can't wait for the appeal to get slapped down, but we have to, you know, sort of look at reality, right. And we have to, and and we, and, and when you, when you wonder how a company like Spotify gets to a place where, you know, they're in the music business, but they want to appeal what a songwriter has appealed. I mean, shame on Daniel Eck, but there's, there's, there's plenty going on behind the scenes that might lead someone else to, to, to come to the same conclusion. Now, you know, what, what's missing from this is the narrative, right? Like Daniel Eck should be standing up for songwriters. You know, when you pay your $10 a month for, Spotify, you know, 
when you're comparing it to Apple or you're comparing it to Tidal or Deezer or whoever it might be, you might make choices that are based on editorial playlists, you know, technology, aesthetics, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you're not paying $10 a month for technology or aesthetics. You're paying $10 a month for access to music, right? So, you know, you would think that Daniel Eck would be the first person to be standing up for songwriters because they're the ones that are delivering the product that make people want to consume Spotify. Yeah. I think it's frustrating for people when they see someone like Daniel Eck, who's worth three point something billion dollars. And that, that money in some people's minds should be going to the songwriters. And it makes me think about, well, what can we do as an industry and what can hypnosis do as a company to help songwriters and to exploit, and I mean that in the best possible way, um, the, the, this is the foundation of our industry, right? I mean, without these songwriters, we don't have a job. And it, it's every other industry is built on top of it, but I, it seems like they're the ones that get the least of that pie. What, what can we do, Merck? So, so a couple of things. First of all, I just want to address that I have no... Um, no problem with Daniel Eck being worth several billion dollars or records, record executives getting paid, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars as some did last year. I, I believe that there's enough abundance in the world for everybody. Right. But I also believe that there's plenty to go around for the songwriters. Right. That's the, so that the problem is not people getting paid money. The problem is, is that as you quite rightly pointed out, Without the songwriter, we have no, you have no job, we have no industry, right? It's, you know, if you push play on Apple or Spotify, you're doing so because you love that artist's songs. If you go and see that artist play live, you're doing so because you love that artist's songs. If you're buying their t-shirts, you're doing it because you love their songs. If you're buying the products that they endorse, you're doing it because you love their songs. If you listen to their interviews, it's because you love their songs. Any, any aspect of this business, whether it's merch or live or whatever it might be that you look at, all starts with the songwriter having written a great song. So how can it be that they are the lowest paid person in the room? So what you have to do right now in the United States, you know, song, how a songwriter is paid is determined by legislation, right? So you'll have record companies that turn around and say, why are you blaming me? I don't set the legislation and it's like yeah it's correct that they don't set the legislation but how does legislation get put in place it gets put in place by advocacy and by lobbying right if you're restricting the amount of advocacy that the three loudest voices in our business should have then you are determining legislation right if you're not letting those voices scream and shout so you know what we're doing is we're creating at Hypnosis, is, is and, and this will be owned by the songwriters and it will be for the songwriters, a genuine songwriters guild. And the purpose of it is to ensure that no negotiation takes place going forward that affects how a songwriter is paid that doesn't have the songwriter sitting at the table, right? Not not a token songwriter that is going to tell you what their experience is, but a group of songwriters that are reflecting the consensus views of their community. And it's taking time, but I'm bringing together hundreds of the most important songwriters to create this guild that will, um, you know, 
fight for songwriters. And, and you know, you'll have people that turn around and tell you, well, no, but you can't unionize songwriters. You know what? I hate to say this, but, you know, 50 years ago in England, you could go to jail for being a homosexual. You could be, you know, uh, uh, hung for being a homosexual. The world has grown up. We don't do stupid things like that anymore. We recognize that each person has a right to be themselves, right? And in this instance, just because something, you know, happened 60 years ago or 100 years ago with regard to piano rolls and piano manufacturers that determine some legislation doesn't mean that it can't be changed. It can be changed, but it can only be changed by recognizing the songwriter's role first, first and foremost. There isn't a recorded music business without there being a songwriter first. Um, and when you recognize and you honor their role and you look at the logic of, you know, shouldn't songwriters be paid more money? There's only one answer and that's yes then you have to fight for it, right? And, and, and the decision that I took was that I could create a business that could make everybody a lot of money and at the same time fight for songwriters and to change where they sit in the economic equation and for the alignment to be such that some of the most powerful institutional investors in the world and private equity, you know, Blackstone is my partner on the private side and in the management company, so on the, on the public side of the business, I've got 493 of the biggest institutional investors. We're a FTSE 250 company on the London stock market, going from strength to strength. We've given our shareholders a 43% total return on their investment since we started in 2018. And all of these people have political clout. Right. And they now sit in the seats of seat of the, the, the shoes of the songwriter and they're motivated to do whatever they possibly can to get the songwriter paid more money. Equally well on, 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 uh, with my partners, Blackstone, they understand that there will come a moment in time where I will ask them to help me open doors that I wouldn't otherwise be able to open myself. And when they help me open those doors, that will be help that the songwriting community has never had before. Yeah, absolutely. Can you point to a time in, when did, when historically did did the publishing industry lose their leverage? Was it really when, when major labels acquired most of those publishing companies or was it even before that? Because it sure seems like there must have been a moment in time where things kind of flipped. You know, the one of the things that, that um, I don't talk a lot about, but that's important and that's particularly important with how we go forward is that the music business in general has been a very unsophisticated business, right? There's, there's a lack of institutionalization. And I mean that word in the, in the most positive sense of the word. I, I call it sophistication rather than institutionalization. But whether you, you know, whichever way you look at it, the lack of sophistication that exists in this business has served a few people greatly at the expense of the songwriters and the artists, right? So one of my missions as well is to bring real sophistication to this business. So when you go from that, you know, Tin Pan Alley, Denmark Street business that existed up until the early 60s, um, songwriters in, and, 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 and publishers had some degree of leverage, right? But ultimately, you know, particularly when you get into recorded, you know, the sort of what I call the, the post-Beatles era where, you know, 
recorded music became such a massive force and bought the publishing companies and controlled the publishing companies and controlled the economics. Like right now, you know, when you put your song up on, on, on Spotify, the metadata relates to, to the recorded, the, the recording, the metadata doesn't re- relate to the publishing or the copyright in the song. Right. So, you know, making this a more sophisticated business is very, very important because that's only going to make it a better business for artists and songwriters. Yeah. Um, listen, as we wind this down, Merck, again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. This is all fascinating. I wanted to ask you, going forward, are, are you optimistic about where we're going as far as, you know, making sure that uh, songwriters are properly paid for their work and that it's a more fair business? Well, just, you know, look, just imagine, you know, first of all, to answer your question directly, I've never been more optimistic, right? But, you know, just imagine that, that, you know, four years ago, you know, almost five years ago when we started hypnosis, nobody was talking about this, right? And I've taken the time to educate people where the songwriter really sits in the economic equation, which is at the bottom of it. I've taken the time to make the point that we all need to work together to take the songwriter from the bottom to the top. And in that space of time, we've, you know, we're seeing positive movements as much as it's at a snail's pace, we're seeing positive movements and noises from CRB, right? The 44% increase, whether it's appealed or wasn't appealed is a, a step in the right direction. I believe that it will be upheld um, the, the 44% increase, and, and that will take us a long way towards things. But really, the microcosm of what's happening in the UK, where, you know, a year and a half ago, the DCMS, the Department of Culture, Music and Sport, started to do an investigation yeah. into the streaming economy. Now Rogers gave evidence, I gave evidence, other people in, in, on, on both sides of the industry gave evidence, and, you know, what we said was, was very, very simple, which is that, look, you're investigating the streaming economy and the streaming services, but what we really need you to be looking at is this unhealthy relationship where the major recording, recorded music companies own and control the publishing companies. And 12 months later, that resulted in a recommendation from the DCMS to the government that the government should ask the competitions and markets marketing authority to do an investigation into this. And, and the second point that, 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 that they raised was exactly the point that we made in our evidence of looking at the dominance of the major recorded music companies. Again, no malice to the major recorded music companies, no malice to the people that, that work in them. It's a paradigm as it currently exists that does not recognize the role and honor the role in a fair and equitable manner of the songwriter in our business. And as we've pointed out in a fair and logical way together today on your podcast, you know, without the songwriter, we have nothing. So how can the songwriter be the worst paid person in the room? Right. So the fact that, that we've gone in, in this period of time of, of advocating and really only start, I consider ourselves to be only scratching the surface to a place where, the competitions and markets authority, marketing authority has started 
its own 12-month investigation into this that I believe will result in the songwriter being paid more money. I believe that CRB3 and CRB4 will ultimately result in the songwriter being paid more money. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm optimistic. But what I'm certain of is that we're making faster progress than I expected. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Uh, again, can I just end with one one quick one as yeah, well, go, Jay? Go right ahead. I would just like Jay and I, uh, Merck, Jay and I talk a lot about because we we were both at, in Warner Music uh, at Universal Music. Jay was at Sony. In those days, the, the even though they owned major publishing companies, if you were on the recorded music side, it was very siloed, and you didn't really know what was going on on the other side. But I think one of the things that I certainly noticed is since you've been on the scene. Just the fact that we even are talking about CRB or all of these things, it really, you know, all ships have risen because of a lot of the advocacy advocacy you have brought to the table and basically bringing, talking about what music publishing is and how important the songwriter the songwriter is and just for the general public to know the difference between songwriters and performers. So I, I think both Jay and I would tip our caps to so much of what you've done to bring this up to the to a level of awareness to not only the people in the business but even people out of the business. Yeah, well, thank you. I'll tell you what's interesting, and 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 I'll, I'll do this quickly. Um, you know, when you look at how sophisticated the investment community is, right? So we have one. I won't mention the names, but we have one of the biggest. You know, one of our biggest, what you'd call cornerstone investors, right? There's a wealth division. There's an asset management division. There's a division that where the analysts sit who are regulated analysts, right? So, you know, this is a, an investor that has a huge chunk of hypnosis is almost $3 billion on, 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 the, on the public side. Um, um, so you would think that their analysts would be someone that they could influence to write nice things about us, right? But they can't because the investment community has genuine Chinese walls in it where that person who's an analyst has to be able to say the things that they think are the right things to say. So sometimes they're supportive of us and sometimes they're not supportive (laughs) of us, regardless of the fact that their sister company has such a massive shareholding. Now, those Chinese walls don't exist in the music industry, right? You know, the people that run these three big publishing (laughs) companies should be able to say and do what is in the best (laughs) interest of their publishing company and their songwriters. And I know them and I can promise you that they genuinely want to, right? But they're dictated to by the recorded music company that owns them. And that makes it more difficult. But you've got people like Big John that is standing up and starting to fight the fight in a really massive way. Um, and I believe that, that you know, because this is really what's important ultimately, right, is, is I'm hopefully provoking people into doing the right thing. The solution for songwriters will absolutely involve Universal, Warner and Sony doing the right thing, right? We just have to drag them to that place. Right, right. Well, I hope that the next conversation we have is going through your record collection and this will be all solved and 
and we can talk music. But, Merck, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. We appreciate it, Merck. Thank you. I've, I've just received the vinyl reissue of Van de Graaff Generator's Pawn Hearts. So <laughs> I'm about to go deep. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Merck, keep the music down. We're trying to work over here, okay? That's right. <laughs> thanks so much. Bye-bye. All later. right. Thanks, Merck. Take care. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.